0: Good morning, please be seated. How are you doing, church? Good. I need you to open your Bibles to a bunch of different books. We're going to start in John 18, as Isaac said, and then uh, I also want if you can remember to find Mark 14 and Luke 23. We'll start in John, then we're going to take a little side trip to Mark 14, and then we're going to end up in Luke 23 uh, as we continue. Also, Well, one hand is turning in the Bible. If you want to circle the word love on your outline, that's our theme for today. One of the most important things we can remember is what we're talking about today is hard to hear, it's hard to understand, uh, but it's not hard to appreciate because it was all done with love. Uh, As we conclude this series uh, called The Message, we've been focusing on the teachings of Jesus and there's a lot going on today. We're going to be listening to the words of Jesus, but we're also going to be spending time appreciating uh, the events and the activities that happened to Jesus on our behalf. But I want to begin very clearly. Whatever you know, whatever you've done, whatever you dream one day could be, nothing, absolutely nothing will be as important when you die as your understanding of who Jesus was and what he did. Nothing you accomplish in this lifetime, nothing you acquire, nothing people think of you will ever have the weight and impact as understanding who Jesus is and why he died. It's Friday of the last week of Jesus' physical life. It's very early in the midnight hours. Jesus had announced last week in John 17 when he prayed, he said to his father, Father, the time has come. He knew that what Judas had put into play was now going to be the most significant thing that ever changes the history of the world. That chain of events had begun, and Jesus was fully compliant, fully willing. John 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. Jesus had gone into the garden and he had prayed, and uh, we know that he had asked his disciples to stay up with him. The Bible records the humanity of Jesus in a powerful description that he was under such duress and stress. We all handle stress differently but I have never been under such an amount of stress that I began to sweat profusely and blood vessels in my head broke and sweat poured off of my face because I was under such a grief and such stress. You can read about it. This is not a, a, a hyperbole. It's not an exaggerated exaggeration. Uh, medical journals will report that this is what happens to people when they're under such great duress. The, the thing I want you to know tonight, or excuse me, I want you to know about that night today is this. This this isn't a myth. Jesus wasn't a robot. He, he didn't simply say to God, let's do it. This hurt. He struggled with this. He had fear. The humanity of Jesus is so important for us. If we make Jesus a robot, he can't understand the lives we live. But because he was a man, he can understand the lives that we live, and we can appreciate him more. Amen? So he was broken. He was grieving. And in the garden comes Judas, and Judas brings the soldiers. And Jesus says to the soldiers, who do you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I'm him. And the soldiers buckle. They fall down in fear because they, they knew who he was. They'd heard the stories about him. And they thought for sure the first soldier to touch him was going to die. And Jesus says, no, it's okay. Just take me. Don't touch the others. That sounds like our Jesus, doesn't it? In a moment where he could have protected himself, he chose to protect us, and he's arrested. But Peter, being Peter, verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, (laughs) that's a bad combination, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I I want us to, to know for a moment. And I want you to show the respect to that statement that it deserves. Peter looked at us in a moment that we would have stopped it. And he says to Peter, Peter, don't you understand? God has asked me to do this. Please note, for all of your theology, for the way you base your life on who God is, that Jesus is saying this is the right thing to happen, even though it was the worst thing to happen. Jesus was committed to this because it was good, even though it was bad. And what happened in that early, early morning hours in that garden was not a captured man. It was a surrendered man. And that's the Jesus I worship. And that's the Jesus I die for. And that's the Jesus that changed my life. Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and they bound him. And they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Trial number one, that late night, early morning, was before Annas, a former Jewish high priest. It's very important that you note that he's a former Jewish high priest. He has no jurisdiction. He has no authority, but he doesn't believe that. John eighteen nineteen. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I want you to notice that this is a trial without jurisdiction. Annas has no right to bring him in and question him. And the man who struck him began a series of mob rule events that were illegal and unethical. To have a man hands tied behind his back and probably his feet shackled and to have someone come up and punch him in the face. In all the, the 1950 and 60 versions of the Passion Week, Jesus is slapped once. But the Greek indicates it was not a slap across the face. It was a full blow. And that began the brutality on Jesus that was unethical and illegal and nobody cared. The first blow allowed the crowd to treat him as a criminal without due trial. And he was being questioned for questioning the high priest who wasn't the high priest. Trial number two, Jesus goes to Caiaphas, the high priest. And before the Sanhedrin court, which will, would have included 70 elders, 70 Pharisees who ruled over all of, Egypt, uh, all of Israel. that They ruled under the authority of Rome, but for the glory of their nation. It's found in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law came together. This is an unlawful gathering. It was illegal for them to meet at night. It was illegal for them to do this, but it didn't stop them. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and he asked Jesus, are you going to answer? What is your testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? They all condemned him as worthy, worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy, prophesy. Some of the other gospel writers say they said, tell us who hit you. And the guards took him and beat him, blindfolded, hands and feet bound, not knowing where the next blow was coming from or if it would ever end. This man who simply would not answer the question they wanted him to answer. And I want you to know that that's important. You're going to hear this morning over and over that they asked Jesus questions, and he didn't answer many of them. Some he did, but many he didn't. And I want to cry out, Jesus, just tell them the truth, and they'll let you go, which is why he didn't answer. Please understand this morning. Jesus knew exactly what was coming his way, and he still obeyed God anyway. Which is probably the greatest gift of love we'll ever get. Because he could have said, I've done nothing wrong, and they would have had nothing against him. But instead, he said, I am the blessed one, knowing full well what that would bring. He's imprisoned at Caiaphas's palace for probably, scholars estimate, a period of four to five hours after he had been physically beaten. Probably bloodied, deeply bruised. John 18, 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor Pilate. By now it was early morning. Several hours of hurting and sore and cold and unprotected and maybe even more physical abuse. So the Jewish elders and the high priest and the Sanhedrin couldn't come to a conclusion. They didn't have jurisdiction. They couldn't execute him without Roman permission. So they take him third, to his third trial before Pilate. Roman governor. Pilate hears the accusations that the Jews are making, and he told them to handle it themselves. And the Jews cried out, no, he's, we need to have him executed, and we need your permission to do that. So, so Pilate brings Jesus in and begins to question him in verse 33 of John 18. Pilate summoned Jesus. Now, I want you to know it's early morning, Pilate doesn't like the Jews and he's annoyed and Pilate doesn't do anything that makes the Jews happy. It's his occupation. So to be awakened early in the morning for this trivial matter, he's irritated. He summons Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Which is a mocking term because the king of the Jews would have no authority with the Romans standing over their shoulders. Is that your own idea, Jesus asks, or did others talk to you about me? I have to imagine at that moment, Pilate probably was amused that here was this bloodied man standing before him early in the morning in shackles, and he's saying to Pilate, so tell me what you know. Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. And Jesus said, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, Pilate's next statement is either said with a sigh or is said with this great lingering question. We don't know. I think we had to hear it. Pilate says, what is truth? And I could have said, what is truth? Or he could have said, yeah, what's truth? This was a man who lived in a brutal world, a world of power and hungering for power. He would probably never tasted truth. With this, he went out again to the Jews and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus not being a king. Now, Jesus' answer is brilliant here because he said, are you king of the Jews? And if Jesus would have said he was king of the Jews, Pilate would have had recourse to punish him because nobody was, had any authority that Rome didn't hand out. And if they gave you authority, it corrupted you because you had to do what was best for Rome over and above your people. That's why tax collectors were hated so much because they took advantage of their own people to make Rome more powerful. But when Jesus said, I am a king, but not of this world, he took away any power and any interest that Pilate would have had in this conversation because he wants Pilate to know, I'm not going to ever answer to Rome, so don't expect that. Interesting moment. He made a choice, though. Pilate does something that, that garners no respect. It's the coward's way out. John 19, 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Some of your scriptures would say had him scourged. If you look those up, on, even on Wikipedia, which is at most a questionable information site, it's universal agreement. There's no question what scourging and flogging was. There's a picture that's going to appear on the screen. It's uncomfortable. It's from a movie called The Passion of the Christ, and it depicts with great accuracy what a scourging was. Now, please remember this was done to an innocent man. This was done to a man who had no trial, no fair trial, and had done nothing to earn this. You see, they would take a man and they would affix his hands above his head. Roman history records that women were never scourged, it was too brutal. They would shackle their hands and they would tie them to a post or over a large stone. They would stretch their their neck and their back and their shoulders and their buttocks and the back of their legs. They would stretch them tight so that there was no, no way you could flinch and protect. They normally would strip the person naked. For the sake of discretion, most depictions don't show the person naked, but this was to bring shame as much as it was to bring great horrifying pain. When they were stripped naked, there would be two executioners that would stand on either side, and they would use these things called the flagrum. It was normally a wood handle that would have anywhere from six to 20 leather straps attached to it. And to the end of those leather straps would be a rock or a metal ball. And that would be used so that when it hits your body, it would instantly bruise your f- uh, flesh and make it tender, very much like some of us prepare meat to be cooked, and in the middle of those leather straps would be metal hooks, metal barbs. And so it would go over your back, and just imagine your hand being the flagrum; It would reach over your taut back, your taut buttocks and your thighs, and it would hit your skin and bruise it, and then the hooks would set, and they would jerk it off your body so that it exposed not only the flesh, but the nerve endings, the vessels, as well as sometimes even the organs. It wasn't pleasant. And it was done over and over and over and over. It wasn't a spanking you would give a child where you give them one swat on the behind and say, do you understand not to do that? This would be done repeatedly so that it would tear the body, that it would begin to put the body in physical shock It was done torturous. The ones that would do this, the ones giving the scourging, were probably the least intelligent and most graphically cruel of all Roman soldiers. They were trained to be animals, and they acted like it. They derived pleasure from it. How close to death could they bring this person? And Pilate decided to have this done to Jesus simply to shut the Jews up. He was hoping that by scourging him, they would realize he'd suffered enough. He just began his suffering. Isaiah 52, 14 describes this. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. They had beaten him so much that the prophets forecast in advance that the brutality on Jesus, that he would look inhuman when this was done. Medical personnel tell us that Jesus would be bleeding profusely at this moment, his body would be laboring to survive, he would have been up all night, remember in the garden, he was under such great duress and stress that physically and mentally he had to be fatigued to the point where most of us would have quit, he still stayed faithful. He had been beaten while blindfolded, pummeled illegally, his body was in shock, and most medical personnel will tell you that the process of death had begun. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they punched him in the face. The crown of thorns would not have been these tiny little pricker bushes when you trim your roses. It would have been long thorns. If you've ever run through the woods and met them, you meet them one time, right? And they would have taken that, and they would have not have placed it gently on his head. They would have jammed it on his head to hear the shriek of the pain with all the nerve endings in your face and head, to have those needles going in your face and being held there with the sweat and the bruising and all of the pain you've already gone through. And they mocked him, and they put a purple robe on him, decided to hail him, king of the Jews. And then he goes to trial four. He appears before Herod Antipas. Pilate realizes that Herod should have had jurisdiction, so he sends him to him because Pilate's done with this nonsense. He's got bigger things to do. Luke 23, 7. When Pilate learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. Verse 9, Herod plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him, and then Herod and the soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. I didn't think much about this except for the past month. I've never thought this thought before previously in my lifetime. But the physical pummeling, the, the beat down, the fatigue, the being up all night, being cold and left exposed and the, the tremors and the convulsions and the body shock and then to have to listen to these people he was dying for, make fun of him and pick at him and bring more pain on top of all of it, to bring mental dress is so overbearing. Herod can't do anything, so trial five happens. He sends him back to Pilate, and the travel would not have been pleasant. He would have been made to walk at a military pace, and he would have been forced against his physicality to go further and further. And to this innocent, pummeled man, they began to mock him, and they gave him the crown and the thorns, and when Pilate said that there was no reason to find him guilty, verse, or John 19, verse 5. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man. Pilate's picking on the Jews now at the expense of Jesus again. As soon as the chief priest and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And the Bible records that even Pilate is so unimpressed with the anger and jealousy. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Do you see what they did? They just claimed their loyalty to Rome over God. They just said, whatever we want to happen, we'll do whatever it takes to make it happen and even declare loyalty to a godless state. Verse 16, Verse 16, Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And Jesus is forced to carry his cross. Verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Crucifixion, Historically. Crucifixion was a state-sponsored terror. It began with the Persians who would impale people. They would take these sticks and they would whittle them down to about four inches in diameter and they would sharpen the end and they would run it through a man's body and they would post the post in the ground and they would wait for days for this person to die from internal bleeding and hemorrhaging. And then the Romans took the idea from the Persians and the Romans decided to uh, perfect it. The the executioners would would take them and make them suffer. History has recorded that some people crucified lasted up to nine days. Nine days of screaming and begging for mercy. And what was the principle? The principle was this. Do not follow this leader or you will suffer their fate. See, I, I want us to understand something. The goal of the Roman crucifixion was not to kill you It was to bring such immeasurable suffering that the only mercy you could receive would be to die. This was not the clean Sunday school version that we see in our pictures with the trickle of blood coming down Jesus' face and and little blood on his hands and his body in perfect physical capacity. They tortured this man. They tore his body to shreds. And then they put a 60 to 80 pound beam on his body and made him carry it over his back. And as Jesus was carrying this beam to his place of torture, the Bible records that he fell face down. And that 60 to 80 pound piece of wood he was carrying over his shoulders. Medical doctors have looked at what he went through and they have concluded this. When he fell face down and that bar landed on his chest with his back exposed and shredded, that it would be the equivalent of a head-on accident at 40 miles an hour unprotected. Again, trauma. And they pull a man named Simon out of the crowd and make him carry the cross beam to the place of crucifixion for him. Little did Simon know he'd be recorded in history as the man in the wrong place at the right time. In fact, I learned something this week just studying. The word excruciating actually means from the cross, from the crucifixion. So please don't ever use the word excruciating again until you mean it. I think that's a word we ought to respect. You see, Jesus' crucifixion was a form the Romans had used all along, and Jesus had probably seen crucifixions growing up because they would crucify people along the roads so that anybody going by would wonder, what did he do? I better not do that. And I wonder how many times as a young boy, Jesus, knowing the scriptures and realizing what was coming his way, would see a crucifixion and think, that's going to happen to me as Jesus was was taken and the crossbar was laid on the ground, Jesus would have been laid and they would have used a spike. And the reason that they put a spike just below your hand, right there at the junction of your hand and wrist, they would have tied his hands down with rope because the, the purpose of crucifixion was to get you to suffocate, not to bleed out. And so they would hold your hands up and a lot of people would, would push up with their legs to gather a breath, and then their body would slump down. And every time they slumped down, all those nerve endings in the most sensitive parts of your body, your feet and your hands, all of those nerve endings would have been exposed and pulsated and had been torn. It's a horrific picture. I don't need to say any more. But he was held up there with nails. And they would begin to drip, sweat, break into the delirium and dehydration. And we'll, we'll hear as we read this passage in a few weeks that they gave him something to drink. And the reason they gave him something to drink wasn't merciful. They gave him something to drink so he'd stay alive long enough to suffer more. It was a cruel game. It was the Romans telling the Jews that they were worthless. And the Jews were the ones who asked for it. So enough details. Let's answer the most important question. Why did this happen? Why? What, why did he have to go through this? What was God's purpose? Why didn't he run away when they came to capture him? Why didn't he call down angels to, to wipe them all dead and be done with all the nonsense? Why didn't he answer Pilate, Herod, or Annas? Because if he would have asked or answered their question, he would have been set free. The legal system would have had to let him go. Why did he not do what he needed to do to take care of himself? Because of us. And I'm not being poetic. He died so we could live. He died so we could live. Because Jesus knew that one person would have to go through that or all of us would. And what did he choose? He chose us over himself. Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. Church, do we know who the transgressors are? It's us, and it still is us. Forgiveness of sins does not take away the damage we did to this man who chose to go through a living hell on earth so we would never go through a moment of hell ever. Romans 4.25, Paul says what Isaiah said. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus knew one of us would suffer And he chose himself. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 says it so beautifully and clearly. Paul says, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Remember when I told you this morning that of all the things you could know and all the things you could dream and all the things you could accomplish and all that people will ever think of you, the most important thing you'll ever know in your lifetime is who Jesus Christ was and why he died. And to know that truth is to respond to it or to ignore it, but there's no middle ground. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Of all the things you could possibly know, of all the blogs and tweets that you could read Of all the books that you could read, all the lectures you could hear, all the advice you could ever receive, all the conversations you could ever endure, and of all the shows you could watch, studies you could go through, of everything you can take in regarding information. Of everything you've ever learned, of everything you ever could learn, the most important thing to know in your life is Jesus Christ killed for us so he could could raise us to eternal life. It's the most important thing. And the world will say, no, there's so many more important things, economics and history and science and all of those things are good. But if they don't point us to Jesus Christ and we don't know the price he paid in a world that wants to gloss it over and say, yeah, he had a bad three hours. No, he had a hellacious 12 hours where he was brutalized and tortured. And why would he do it for you and me? God wants you, God knows you, God loves you, God pursued you, and God was tortured and tore apart for you. Why did it have to be so bloody? Because sin is death if we don't find life. Sin is making a bloody mess of every one of us. It's destroying us. And Jesus let all the wrath and all the punishment and all the torture for our insubordination and our willfulness, he gave all of that and he said, give it to me. And what does he ask in return? He asks for all of us. Does he deserve anything less than everything? I say no. A Sunday morning isn't what he deserves. A Wednesday night is not what he deserves. He deserves everything everything. Why? Because he was tortured so I wouldn't be. How dare I say no to a simple request he makes of me at any time? So what do I do? I confess my sin, my sin that put him there. I repent of my sin and I choose to walk in the way he asks me to because he gave his life for mine. I will give my life to him. And upon confessing him as Lord and confessing my sin and repenting of my sin, I receive his wonderful blood. I'm washed clean in baptism and I walk in a new life. I don't walk in an old life. When he went to that cross, I should have gone. And so when he went to that cross, I leave that life at the cross and I walk into a future. This is PG 13 because it's real, church. It's not a story to get you emotional. It's the historical evidence of the brutalization of a man who paid our penalty so we wouldn't. And I say, does he deserve our praise and worship? Does he deserve your response? Those of you who cannot proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, look at the evidence and look at the price paid for you. And I ask you this question, is there anything that man could ask of you that you dare say no to? Because that's when we become disciples. When we say, I have to leave my life at the cross, just like Jesus chose to, let's stand together and sing.